ask again that you open your Bibles to John chapter 2. As we mentioned in our scripture reading, this is what we'll be preaching on today. And as you turn there, I'm just going to begin in prayer. And if you want, you can join with me in prayer as well. Let's just pray together. Father, we thank you because you gather us, Lord. And I pray, Father, that at this moment, we would put our minds to the things above, the heavenly things. Lord, we know that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we ask that your spirit would strengthen us this morning to be able to capture and pay attention and hear your word, Lord, Heavenly Father, and see your glory through this text. In Jesus' name we pray, and we all say amen and amen. We are in... John chapter 2, and this portion of the Gospel of John is what's called the book of signs, where Jesus will be doing various signs and wonders or miracles. And last week we saw that Jesus does his first miracle. It's at a wedding, and he turns water into wine. But the highlight of that passage is towards the end of the passage. If you remember with me, in verse 11, it says, the disciples saw his glory. Jesus manifests his glory, and the disciples what? Believed. And what I want you to notice as we go through today's passage is that this theme of real disciples who see Jesus' glory. In other words, disciples see more than just a miracle. True believers of Jesus Christ see the miracle maker. They see more than just the man who does signs and wonders. They see God incarnate. They see Jesus, the Son of God. And this is a theme that will occur time and time again in this portion of the book of John. So look again with me at verse 12. It says, after this, right after he does this miracle, after this, he went down to Capernaum. And with him was his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now notice, Jesus has just done a miracle. He's just turned water into wine, and yet, I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, so that you can see what just happened in these two stories. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, right before he does the miracle. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, notice the characters in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. His mother is at the wedding. Jesus is at the wedding, and his disciples are at the wedding. The, the narrative shifts, but the characters do not. In other words, Jesus has just done a miracle, and he's got no new followers. Who went to Capernaum with him? His mother. His disciples, and we get here in addition to the narrative, his brothers. But his brothers are not going to Capernaum as followers of Christ. They're going simply because his mother is going. And like a good mother who goes on a road trip, she does not leave her small children behind. She takes them with them. Do you see this in verse 12? Jesus has done a miracle, yet he's gained no new followers. 
And Jesus will continue these signs, and yet the pattern will continue. The disciples will see his glory, but the non-disciples will not. In verses 12 through 17, and we'll read these in a moment, Jesus will purify the temple. Verses 18 through 21, Jesus will identify himself as the new temple. In verse 22, we see that the disciples believe in him as Savior. And verses 23 to 25, Jesus will identify what I'm calling fake disciples, phony disciples, not real, authentic disciples. In verse 12, we learn that Jesus goes to Capernaum, but he stays there a short while. Why? Look at verse 13, and I'll read all the way to 16. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus stays for a little while in Capernaum. Not because it's unimportant to him, but because the Passover was at hand. We learn in Luke chapter 2 verses 41 to 42 that Mary would take her children every year during the time of Passover to Jerusalem. And so Jesus has left Capernaum because he wants to be in Jerusalem when the Passover time comes. And when he gets there, he goes to the temple. And it's what he finds in the temple that is striking to him. In other words, he goes into the temple not expecting to find what he finds. So what does he find? He finds sellers, people selling sheep and oxen and pigeons, and he finds the money changers. Now, the animals described here make sense. Pigeons were used for sacrificial worship so were sheep and oxen so it makes sense that they're selling these animals and in some ways the intention is good it's convenient if you're traveling from far away to buy the animals near the temple in Jerusalem so imagine if Jesus has to bring cattle all the way from Capernaum to Jerusalem think about how long that would take you can't call an uber in Jesus's time and even you uber drivers might not want sheep cattle and pigeons in your nice cleaned cars so imagine having to whip the animals and guide them it take a long time so what people did was they sold the animals there it was convenient The problem isn't the selling of animals. The problem is where they're selling them. It's the same thing with the money changers. The money changers are not there all year round. They're there during the temple tax season, which was right before the Passover, in the month of Nisan in the Jewish calendar. And so once a year you had to offer money or pay your tithe, your temple tax. And so what's important about this is that the money changers are simply exchanging currency and exchanging it to the proper currency for the temple tax. And oftentimes they would 
charge a fee for that transaction. And again, there's nothing wrong with what they're doing. The issue is where they're doing it. So for you to understand what's going on here, say, for instance, you arrive this morning. And normally what you'd expect, given that by now you have your, our liturgy, in a sense, memorized, you'd expect someone to come up to the front, give, or ask you to stand up, open up your Bibles, and give a call of worship, followed by some singing followed by a, a, a worship through offering and singing and a scripture reading and, and prayer. And, and you'd expect to find this, but imagine you walk in this morning at 9 a.m. and the first thing you hear is, popcorn! Get your popcorn! Nachos here! Nachos! Get your beer here! We're not that reformed, but you get the point. You'd be like, what's going on? That's not what you were expecting to find as you came in this morning, I hope. And if you were, All-Star Weekend really has your cable screwed here in Chicago. It's not what you would be expecting to find. It's the same thing with Christ. He walks into the temple and he's hearing sheep here, oxen here. Right down this hall you can go exchange money with the money changers. They were not supposed to be in the temple. Jesus went in expecting to hear worship, expecting to hear prayers being lifted up from contrite and humble hearts, and instead he finds these men. And so what does Jesus do? He makes a whip, and he drives them out of the temple. Now, we need to be cautious here, because Hollywood often depicts Jesus making a whip and whipping all of the men out of the temple, he's strong in this passage, but he's not that vicious. The whip is for the animals. Now, for those of you that have had the privilege of traveling to other countries or, or, or if you've ever been in a farm, you know that cattle need to be let out through whipping sometimes. And so I remember uh, when I would go to El Salvador, I've seen this also in other countries. You go and you, and you see the, the people in El Rancho, the, the farmers, and they're going, it's it. And you're driving out the animals. The whip is not for the people. It's for the animals. The animals are being driven out, but so are the money changers and so are the sellers. What is Jesus' issue with that being in the temple? It's improper worship. The temple needs to be purified because the temple is giving improper worship or there's improper worship at the temple. Now you'll remember in the book of Malachi chapter 1, the issue that God has with the priests is false worship. They were giving bad cattle. They were offering up blind cattle. They were offering up lame cattle. And so God gets angry with the priests and he says, I will not accept this type of worship. And now the animals are correct in the case of Malachi, but the heart is not. In this passage, we don't know if the issue is the animal. The, 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 it's probably, we can assume that the animals are, are the right proper animals for worship, but what's the issue here? The method is wrong. This is not supposed to be happening in the temple, which raises a theological question. What does God care about most? 
the heart of worship or the method of worship? And the answer, of course, is both. You can't have a right heart and then reinvent how we should worship. This is what the Ten Commandments are all about. Don't take my name in vain. There is a way that God wants to be worshipped. But at the same time, you can't do the proper methods of worship and then have your heart far away from God. And so they're both important. And Jesus begins to cleanse the temple. And we see the issue in verse 16. They've made the house of God a house of trade. Another translation, a house of commerce. Now this is interesting because in the United States, I would argue many churches follow this pattern. Leadership that's more business-minded, more business-oriented than they are God-oriented. Churches that care more about marketing schemes and what gets more likes on Instagram and Facebook than actual biblical fidelity. And this is the problem that Christ has with these money changers and sellers. They've, they've refocused the focus of worship. It's become about what's being sold than about the object of worship, which in this case, in this context, is Yahweh. It's, it's become a shift in what our attention should be at. And I would say that in the United States, many churches need to be purified and go back to the centrality of worship, which is Jesus Christ and his gospel. So what is Jesus upset about? He's upset about this rebranding in the temple. It's become a house of trade instead of proper worship to the house of God. Now, do the Jews get this? No. And we'll see this in the next section in verses 18 and on. But notice who does get it. Look at verse 12. Look at what John is telling us. Again, you have to see this connection with signs and disciples. Verse 17, I'm sorry, of chapter 2. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews have no clue what Jesus has done, but his disciples get it. Believers understand what's going on here, and they remember this passage found in Psalm chapter 69. And I'm going to ask that you turn your Bibles with me to Psalm chapter 69, verses 7 through 13. I'm going to read a little bit of context here so that you can understand what's going on. Psalm 69, verse 7 through 13 says the following. This is a psalm of David. It's called the prayer of the suffering servant or the, or the prayer of a righteous sufferer. I'm sorry. The prayer of a righteous sufferer. And here's what David says. For it is for your sake... That I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. 
For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now, right away, you can see why the disciples connect this to Jesus. In Psalm 69, what David is saying in this, these verses 7 through 9 is, I'm being reproached, or I'm being hated, but it's not because of his cause. It's because of God's cause. It's the zeal for his house that has brought hate upon him. And, and notice verse 8, I become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mothers. Now, why would this remind us of Jesus what we just learned last week. What does Mary say to Jesus? They've run out of wine. And Jesus, I'll use the modern translation, says, ma'am or madam, what does that have to do with me? In the text, it's mother. What does that have to do with me? He's a stranger. His mother does not understand. And we learned this last week that he's come to do the Father's will. You're seeing this connection and zeal for your house will consume me. Now, verses 10 through 12, I'll read them quickly. Here's what David says. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting. In other words, the more serious I got about God, it became my reproach. The more I was hated. I, was in sack, I made my, sack, my sackcloth, my clothing, that's clothing worn for mourning and suffering. I made my sackcloth, my clothing, and I became a byword to them. In other words, I became a saying. There goes David, the mourner. There goes crybaby David. It's a byword. He became a saying. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, verse 12, and the drunkards make songs about me. What's David's point? As my zeal increases for the house of God, the more others reproach me and make fun of me. Now John is using this same Analogy, the disciples remember, they see the connection because this is what Jesus is doing. He is cleaning house because the worship is wrong. There is a zeal that's consuming him for proper worship, but the difference with the Old Testament and this passage is it's in future tense. Zeal for your house will consume me. It's not just that he's presently consumed. There's a deeper sign here, and the disciples know this very well. Maybe not here, but later on they will understand. And it is this idea that Christ isn't just consumed because there's improper worship, but he will literally be consumed. He'll go to the cross, and he will die. He will be crucified on the cross, Christ will literally be consumed because of his zeal. Now, this is prophetic, Malachi chapter 3, in context 1 through 3, but I'm just going to read verse 3 for the sake of time. Here's what it says. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. The Jews should have remembered that it was prophesied time and time again that when the Messiah would return, he would begin his reign by cleansing the temple. And yet they miss the sign. They don't perceive it. They don't understand it. But we see in verse 17, the disciples do. So this is the first section. Jesus purifies the temple 
as the disciples get it. Now notice verse 18. Here's the response of the Jewish leaders, the non-disciples in this case. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now this is a lot to unpack here. But I want you to notice what happens. The Jewish leaders... Here is what it probably refers to as Jews. It's not the whole Jewish nation, but the Jewish leaders, those who take care of the temple. They're not seeing Jesus as some wacko. They're not looking at Christ as like he's a lunatic who's lost it. In some sense, they're recognizing there's some merit to what he's done. They're recognizing in some way that if a prophet would return, this is exactly how he would act. They're not denying that there is some merit to Jesus' action. Yet in verse 18, here's what they're asking. What sign do you show us for doing these things? It's a question of authority. Modern translation, who do you think you are, Jesus, to tell us what to do? They're snapping back at Jesus. It is a question of authority. What signs do you show us for doing these things? They're demanding a sign. Now, again, the cleansing of the temple was a sign. These Jewish leaders who have read the Old Testament, who taught the Old Testament, should know that when the Messiah would come, he would restore proper order, yet they miss it completely But there's another emphasis here. While they grant some merit to the purification, there's zero repentance. They don't repent. Instead, they demand a sign. And oftentimes we see this in churches where elders and pastors and deacons call the attention of brothers and sisters in Christ. And hardly is the response repentance. It's usually, well, who are you to tell me? that I shouldn't treat my wife this way. Well, who gave you the authority to tell me what to do and what not to do? Answer, no one. I've got zero authority over your lives. The only thing that has authority over your lives is the Word of God. And my job is to highlight what the Word of God calls sin, and it's under this authority that we bring oftentimes what's called church discipline. Or a correction of church members. But this is the question that they ask Jesus. What sign do you do or do you give us for doing these things? What's the authority? Now notice Jesus' response. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's the sign. It's another one. It's the second sign. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up. It's an imperative. But it's not a command. It's what's called a conditional Imperative. Allow me to illustrate this for you so you can understand. Let's say you go to Target and you're walking down the aisles and you're getting groceries and, you know, like many mothers do when they go to Target, they don't just go to the grocery section, they go to the baby section. If you have babies, the electronic section. I mean, they go down and up the aisles of Target. And little Johnny's with you and he's good at the baby section He's good at the grocery section, but then you're walking through aisles and aisles and aisles 
of the toy section. And as you're walking, little Johnny goes, Mom, can I have a toy? And you go, no, Johnny, remember we said we're just getting what we're going to get. And he's like, man, but we've gone through three sections where we're not getting what we're going to get. And, and so, and, and he's like, okay, he listens. But he goes to another aisle. And now he's at his favorite aisle where all the comic book heroes are, where all the action figures are, where all the cars are. And he goes, mom, a little bit louder, can I get a toy? And you go, no, Johnny, remember, we said we weren't going to buy toys today. Now Johnny doubles down. And he goes, well, I'm not moving until I get my toy. And like good Latino parents, like good parents, wise parents, you know that Target has cameras. So you look at little Johnny and you say, keep doing that and watch what's going to happen to you. The keep doing that is not, please keep doing that. It's a warning. It's in a command form, but it's a warning. If you continue doing this, when you get home, you're going to get a butt whooping. You're going to meet what in Spanish we call la varita de corrección. What Jesus is saying here is he's not telling them destroy the temple. What he's saying is if you destroy the temple, I will raise it up in three days. And this is, again, the emphasis that the Jews in this case, who I'm calling non-disciples, have zero clue what Jesus is talking about. And what's their response to this? We've been building this temple for 46 years, or the temple was built. There's two traditions. We know that Herod was continuing the reconstruction of the temple during this time. Some believe that he's making a new section in the temple. Others believe he's continuing what Ezra and Nehemiah had started in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament. Regardless of where you fall, the point is that what they're saying is it's taken a long time to build this temple. And you're telling us, Jesus, that you will raise it up in three days, and here's the sign that they demanded. Jesus says to them, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And then John tells us what the sign is. He's not speaking of a physical temple building. He's speaking of his body, which is himself. What he's saying is, I will go to the cross and be destroyed, but make no mistake about it. You may put me in the grave, but on the third day, I will rise myself up again. Because Christ is God incarnate. Jesus as God incarnate has the power to raise himself up from the dead. That's the sign. Now there's a deeper sign than just simply Jesus saying, I'm the temple. It's a restoration that the Jews should no longer go to the temple, but that they should recognize that Jesus is the center of worship. I'll give a brief discussion here on what's called biblical theology and the themes of places of worship and God's presence. In the Garden of Eden, God places Adam and Eve in a garden, and we know his presence was there. Adam walked with God. He talked with God. And after they sinned, he expels them from his presence. So what does God do in Exodus 19? He makes another dwelling place. It's called the Mount of Sinai where Moses would go up and, and the Mount of Sinai would be filled with God's glory. In Exodus chapter 40 verse 34, another dwelling place of God's presence, the tabernacle is built. 
And all the people can gather and worship the Lord. In 2 Chronicles 5.14, when Solomon's temple is built, the ark is placed in the temple. And 2 Chronicles lets us know the glory of the Lord filled the house. God's presence, God's presence, God's presence. What's interesting is that when the Babylonians destroy the temple, we never get another passage when the temple is rebuilt that God's glory dwelt. It is my strong conviction that it has been years since the presence of God has been in the temple. And Jesus is saying not simply that he's the temple, but he's the very embodiment of this presence of God. Now, we've already seen this in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you jump to verse 14, and the Word became flesh. Colossians makes it even clearer. Chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He is the visible image. He, Christ, the visible image of the invisible God. And later on in that section it says, And the fullness of the deity of the Godhead dwells in him. He's not simply just the object of worship in the temple. He's not just the new temple. He's the very presence of God in the temple. This is the sign. Now who gets it? Look at verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The Jews do not understand. They do not see the sign. These non-disciples have no clue what the sign is, but his disciples do. When Jesus dies and resurrects, they remember these words. And we cannot leave here today with raising this question. Is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ enough? Disciples say yes and amen. And I would argue non-disciples, nope. To put it another way, if you're here for the first time and you're going, well, if Jesus does this this morning, then I'll believe. If Jesus heals X and X person, then I'll believe. But that's not what John is teaching us. We only need one sign. And it's the sign of his death and resurrection. We only need one sign to believe in Jesus Christ. And is that, yes, he was crucified. Yes, he was put in the tomb. But in three days, he rose up from that grave. Do you believe in that sign, friends? Is that sign enough for you to repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ? Or do you need another sign? And I would like to argue this morning, you don't need another sign. That's the only sign we need to get serious with Christ. To believe, to be true, authentic disciples of Christ. How dare we? Put that sign to the side and say, no, Jesus, I need to see more. 
you need to prove to me more. That's not the attitude of a disciple. The attitude of a true disciple is they see this sign. It reminds me of the famous hymn written in 530 AD as a form of poem and then translated in the year 1837 into a form of song. It says this, see the destined day arise, see a willing sacrifice, Jesus to redeem our loss, hangs upon that shameful cross. Jesus, who but you could bear wrath so great and justice fair, every pain and bitter throw, finishing your life of woe. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Lamb of God for sinners slain. Hallelujah, hallelujah, Jesus Christ, we praise your name. We don't need another sign to worship his name. We have the sign. It's the sign that he died and rose again. And if you're not a believer, I pray that your eyes would be open and that you would see the beauty of our Savior. And yet, in spite of God's greatness, and again, this connection of the Jews not seeing what the disciples see, we get in clarity what up to this point John has been teaching in subtleness. Look with me at verses 24 or 23 and on. It's the final portion of this passage. Now remember, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and here's what it says. Now, he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. So now, we're at the Passover time. And many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing, again, notice that signs are being done with this word believe. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. I'm going to read verse 23 again, the ending of that. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Notice what's missing. It's key to understanding the flow of this passage. It says many believed, but what's missing is disciples. Up until this point, we've seen the disciples see the sign and they believe. The disciples remember zeal for your house. The disciples remembered what he had said when he rose, when he died and rose again. But here it just simply says, many believed in his name when they saw what he was doing. It's fake belief. It's this type of belief. I've got my court date coming up. And I want the judge to give me a good verdict. So let me pray. Jesus, please help me. Please get me out of this situation, Jesus. Please, please help me. There's belief in the ability that Jesus can help. And then what happens? By the providence of God, he comes through. And he helps you. And for a while, you're on fire and you're, yes, thank you, Jesus. I believe in you. I believe in you. But after a while, you start saying, well, my court state's done. Doesn't seem like the judge is going to go back on his claim. So what do we do? Bye, Jesus. I don't need you no more. You've done what I needed you to do. Now, for that moment, was there faith? Sure. Did the person believe? Absolutely. They believed that Jesus could 
heal them if it's a sickness, that Jesus could help them if it's a court case. And even for the students here, you know this too well. Sometimes you don't study as you should and you go, Lord, just please give me all omniscient wisdom and help me pass this test. And God comes through. But then what happens after? Now notice that this is the type of belief that's being exercised here. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. That word entrust is actually the same Greek word used for those who believed. Notice the contrast here. Many put their trust or faith in Jesus, but on the contrary, Jesus did not put his trust or his faith in them. Now that kills a lot of modern preachers today. Jesus is vulnerable When he died on the cross, he did not know if you were going to follow him or not. No, he knows. We'll see this in John 10. He knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. He's come to lay down his life for the sheep. Jesus knows who he's coming for, and he also knows who the phony, fake disciples are. Look at verse 25. He needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. You may be sitting here this morning thinking, God don't know. And you'd be wrong. He knows. He knows if you've been practicing sin. He knows if you've been living a chilled or comfortable Christianity. He knows if... If, if you've been in immorality, the Father knows no one needs to testify now. I don't know what your life looks like outside of these doors. But make no mistake about it, Jesus knows. He doesn't need to see a Facebook post. He doesn't need to see an Instagram private message. He doesn't need to see these things. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. He knew that they were fake believers. And so he says, my faith is not in them. My trust is not in them. Friends, God's will is not dependent upon us. That is why we respond in thankfulness that he uses us. God can carry on his will with or without us. And I'm just thankful that he uses us. He himself knew what was in Man, I'll read John chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, and we'll explain this in a later date. But here's what he says. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus knows what's in man. And may we be accursed if we come to God's house in pride, thinking that we're good and that we're self-righteous because we're not. Now notice the flow of this passage. There's been a temple cleansing, and then there's an identification of the new temple. Both things that only his disciples see. In verse 23 to 25, we see the emphasis that while others can see signs, it does not mean that they're true disciples, that they're true followers. And yet, here's what I want you to know. 
The same Christ who can cleanse an improper temple from false worship is the same Christ who can cleanse your heart from all sin and shame and guilt. The same Christ who got rid of all the improper worship is the same Christ who can grab the most vilest and wicked of heart to the point where we can say with all conviction, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And my prayer is that you would rise up this this morning and say, Jesus, I am a sinner. But I know that only you have the power to save from sin and shame and guilt and the very wrath of Almighty and Holy God. And my question to you is, would you come to Christ this morning so that he could cleanse you from all sin? I'm going to ask that you rise up this morning. And if the band is here, I want to sing this one last time. Is anyone worthy? Let us pray. Father, we come before you, not in self-righteousness, not in pride, but understanding that even as disciples, we need to mature daily in our walk with you. But at the same time, Father, I pray that if there are non-believers in this room, that the sign of your death and resurrection would be enough for us as disciples, as, as followers of you, that it would be enough to continue to grow in you, to worship you, to be in awe and in reverence of you. And that this same sign for the non-believer would be the sign that has been the same sign for all of the ages, for thousands and thousands of years, that today it would open up blind eyes and deaf ears so that non-believers could see your glory and run to you, so that they could hear the wonders of your word and come to you in repentance, Father. We thank you for this morning, and we end in proper worship of you. In Jesus' name, we thank you. And we say, amen. Let us sing this chorus one last time before we end.